0: Ayushi Mona, and you're listening to India Booked, a podcast where we lean into the idea of India through its literature, and we speak to authors who bring this to life. Hello, everyone. I am Ayushi Mona, your host on India Booked, a podcast where we lean into the idea of India through its literature. Today, I have with me Amandeep, who's essentially a uh, uh, written uh, Punjab journey through fault lines. It encapsulates Punjab very much through the written world as I try to do via this podcast. Amandeep was born in Orissa. He studied at the University of Hyderabad, worked as a journalist, as a technical writer. His first two uh, books, you know, were autobiographical fiction. But this piece is his first non-fiction work and it's an absolutely important book and, and the reason I call this an important book is because of the kind of narratives it brings together uh, when I was thinking of an, of an appropriate adjective right to describe the book and I also went through a few reviews of what people were saying you know I heard things like well written excellent brilliant book But to me, uh, Amandeep, this is an important book and I want to talk to you about it. And I'm thrilled that you're on the show. First of all, uh, a very, very warm welcome and thank you for sharing your time with us.
1: Thank you very much, Mona. I'm really happy to be here with you and talking to everybody else through this podcast.
0: So Amand, my first question, usually I lead with, you know, the beginning of the book. But I want to ask something that you say in the epilogue, right? You mention how the people of Punjab, who have seen one generation lost to militancy, one to drugs, and the present to exodus, are looking for new directions, new voices, and new leadership. To begin with, I want to first ask you on the generation that was lost to militancy.
1: What do I say about it? It's lost. You know, like, uh, (laughs) uh, I mean, the, the struggle between a region and the nation state, took sadly, a bloody turn in the late 70s, early 80s. And the nation state, I think, did not pay enough attention. It believed that it can crush anything that comes up. And then we had the Operation Blue Star, which to me is a watershed moment, not only of my life, but of anybody who is in their 40s now, because uh, we were just beginning to understand the world and here Operation Blue Star happened. The way I talk about it in the book is that it was actually a rupture of the trust between a citizen and a state. And when that kind of rupture happens and then the state does not heal it, it becomes quite sad. And it takes turns, which took turns, and it became militancy. Then Mrs. Indra Gandhi was assassinated, and the anti-Sikh pogrom happened. And even then, there has been no justice to the, the victims of the pogrom. And it is a continuous wound festering on the conscience of India, I think, that uh, we have not learned from our mistakes, and we then repeated them later on in other parts of the country as well. So the generation who... See, we must recognize that India was a young country at that time in 1984. Mm, It was barely 35, 37 years old. Uh, The Sikhs by themselves had been an empire which was lost to the British and then which was divided through partition. And uh, the Sikh community was also looking for ways to, to better their lot. And unfortunately... Naturally, others jump in when such things happen, and uh, it took a very, very bloody turn. About fifty thousand people were lost. About another twenty-five thousand people have still disappeared. So it is a generation lost in many, many ways.
0: And you know this—the battle of the Darbar Sahib during Operation Blue Star, right? And and you speak of it as an engagement between the nation-state and the fighters of a religion, right? Whose ethos lies in standing up for justice and honor right this i mean this happens in a certain moment in, in obviously india's political history and also there is this legacy right of the partition that punjab has struggled with your book in fact and and when i started this i said that you know there is militancy and drugs and exodus but your book i think uh you've so beautifully divided this in in these 16 uh chapters right whether it's a sat or a berukhi or zameen karza um and and for those of you listening to the podcast right there are 16 sections which cover everything from inless faith masculinity corpses you and you have to read the book to learn more about it of course but never before and and I much like a lot of other people have perceptions of Punjab have a perception based on the kind of media I've consumed or the news I've listened to etc right but never before had I read I mean, uh such a comprehensive personal history uh which was still so well tied with every single aspect of the state you know because You hear this in bits and pieces, right? You hear, I mean, in in a public imagination, um, you have a certain Bollywood imagination, you have a certain uh, imagination that comes from watching the recent kind of media that a film like a Urta Punjab or a Patal Lok show you, right? But then we don't really, really ever see very mainstream discussions, right? Apart from occasional flashes on the news of say, uh, of the Dalit issue, right? Because Sikhism uh, was, the premise really was uh, to do away with the perils and all the trappings of the caste system that Hinduism imposed, that Sikhism could do away with. But today, um, there is, and your book really brings a lot of these stories to the forth of how this is still thriving.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, 31.9% of Punjab is Dalit, which is the highest population of uh, the Dalit people anywhere in any state in the country. But the very fact that it exists continuously flummoxes me because, as you said, the Sikhism stood on two basic ideals. One was justice and one was equality. And uh, we have not really followed the gurus. Uh, uh, We fight for identity, but uh, we haven't followed the real teachings of the gurus because by that there should be no discrimination. And within Punjab, uh, normally there is a narrative about the suvarna classes. In Punjab, it is the Jats who are the landowners, who are actually about 25 percent of the population. Uh, they are the Brahmins of Punjab, you know, and uh, and there is exploitation that happens every day at at every level. And this is something the Sikh religion really needs to reflect upon and cure before it goes out as a singular identity to asking for their own rights, because they're also crushing the rights of the Bahujan people then. Mm -hmm. And similarly, there is another side to it is gender. Uh, It is also a patriarchal feudal society. And uh, though the Punjabi women are very dynamic, and as I show in my book, nowadays it is the Punjabi women who are actually coming out more and more leading not only social justice movements, but also within families, taking care of elder older people, doing what technically or traditionally what the male child was supposed to do. But yet we don't have their narratives and we need those narratives. So both caste and gender are, are very, very insidious practices of Punjab, which we need to cure before we think of ourselves as one people as united by religion or whatever other external symbolism we might ascribe to ourselves you know.
0: true and uh, and you know i think um, uh, for people who will read the book and for those who have read the book uh, your l- amount of rigorous research that you did of course i i across blurbs and the book say that you were trying to uh, fill a hole in your heart and, and try to understand the texture of the blood that flows in your veins, uh, even if you, you know, you weren't born there. I, I thought that was a very beautiful thing.
1: Yeah, and I, like you just said in the before the previous question, that we all have perceptions about Punjab based on various images and texts that we see and read, um, the, the sounds we hear. You know, uh, and I say it in the first chapter as well. That it was like, you like my hand, but you don't like my arm. You know, you like my foot, but you don't like my leg. You like parts of me, but you don't like the whole of me. And I was not born in Punjab. I lived there in the critical period of militancy. But uh, I also had impressions about Punjab from various sources. And uh, most of them did not fit in together as, as one state or one people, In my mind, you know, there were contradictions between them. For example, how do you look at uh, militancy alongside langar, you know, which is one of the big traditions of Punjab and of the Sikh community, you know? Um, How do you hold uh, Sufi music uh, alongside uh, issues of sacrilege, of holy book, you know? Like, how do you understand this? How do you understand dwindling uh, male-female ratio? How do you understand caste? So I also went looking... understand Punjab, actually, and media friends were kind to me. They commissioned me stories to do. Actually, most of them said, whatever catches your fancy, just send to us. I wrote for Caravan uh, one article per month on various aspects and uh, traveling for about uh, three years, uh, basically in bits and pieces. I mean, not together. I felt that, okay, here are these stories from Punjab and that should do it. Why do I need to make a book about it? And then I thought that, uh, but these stories were meant for immediate consumption in media. What would give them a long-lasting stretcher? So I realized that I need to bring in contextual history of everything that was happening, that I had covered already. And that led me to studying history, meeting people, trying to understand history and all that. And then I thought, okay, now we have reportage and now we have history this should be a book, but that would be a textbook. That won't really be a non-fiction book, you know, like it won't be a book like it is now. And that's where I realized that I can only make it personal if I talk about my own journeys through Punjab, both in the past, through my lifetime and the current journey, and then contrast what I already knew with what I'm seeing right now. Like some example that comes to my mind is like we used to have the hand pump. You know, the hand pump was central to Punjab. Anywhere you look, you would find a hand pump in colonies, on streets, near the railway station, near bus stops, near hospitals. Water was free. I mean, and water could, good water could just be consumed. And now I see Punjab, there is hardly a hand pump left anywhere. And water is Punjab's. Punjab is named after the five rivers. And yet water is Punjab's greatest crisis right now. You know, so so that is how you then try to so that the book became reportage plus contextual history plus memoir, and that is why you know even the the structure of the chapterization of the book and uh, my editor helped me a lot with how to how to structure the book, and uh, it's finally in your hands as a book which you say is important, and I think uh, that has been the universal appreciation for it. Also, everybody feels, you know, Punjab was also talked through various different lenses earlier. Somebody would do a political story of Punjab. Somebody would do an economic story of Punjab. Somebody would do a partition story of Punjab. You know, all these were different books. I wanted to look get a book which gave me the whole of Punjab in one book. I did not at that point realize that this book would become so thick. You know, it's like 558 pages. Uh, actually, I must tell you, my editor cut out 80,000 words, so that would actually have been like 900 pages book. You know, like we cut it out because uh, we could say what we wanted to say in this much. But I wanted to to read a book on Punjab, which would help me understand current Punjab. I think it is Tony Morrison who said that if you don't find the book you want then make that book,
0: you know, and so I made the book. And I'm so glad you did. You know, uh, Aman, uh, in, in many ways, right? The sense that I got from reading this book was a sense that I got from reading the Discovery of India when I read it for the first time. Because he, while I knew that, oh, there was this Indus Valley civilization and this freedom movement and this Gandhi and, and uh, that irrigation system until i did not read the discovery of india it did not all come together for me right i knew of it in bits and pieces and when you read cohesive right it helps you see things in in a completely different new light of course not to say that if you read just an economic or just a political history you're not consuming information or having epiphanies but to have if i could call it a single source of truth right or or something which is so cohesive in its narrative as a reader it's a delight because often you know you're reading pieces together but you can't string uh the kind of impact that they've had across history uh so, and especially when you're talking about a state right because there is you know say an independence after the partition and there is a gurudwara reform movement there is the birth of Akali Dal. there's so much right uh, there, there's a timeline of punjab three quarters after the british have annexed punjab there is a timeline of punjab where there is massive drug addiction there is green revolution there's so much just like a person right a state is and and the nation is very much a living thing and and to have it in a book right it, it's a, this book is an autobiography of punjab
1: to me thank you but uh, just my autobiography of Punjab. And I think that's an important point to make because somebody perhaps who had uh, was born and had lived and grown up in Punjab might have written the same book in a very different way, you know. Uh, in that sense, uh, I had, uh, as I say in the book as well, I had sensory uh, experiences of Punjab, but I did not have an audio track of Punjab in my head, you know, and... Uh, like I knew what it tastes like, I knew what it touches like, I knew what it smells like, but I don't didn't knew how it hears like, you know how one can one can construct a narrative of Punjab, and uh, but I would also like to qualify that it is just my autobiography of Punjab, and I'm sure if others write, and I wish others would write, especially women would write, especially bahujans would write you know, then they would write their own stories of Punjab. And somewhere between these stories, a reader might be able to find Punjab. Because he used the word uh, truth earlier, and you know, truth was very bewildering to me in my research phase of Punjab. Because, uh, see, uh, we normally think truth is uh, an objective reality that we need to finally find, you know. and uh, But Punjab is a landmine of narratives. Because of the wounds that we earlier talked about, you know, the quest for a separate uh, state, the militancy, the Blue Star movement, um, event, the, the pogrom and all that, there is a lot of disquiet in Punjab about many things which are historical in nature. And then those things get repeated also. You know, like, uh, for example, right now, there is a big protest going on in Punjab over the new farm bills, you know and uh, people in punjab are seeing this as uh, just another phase of the same way in which india has treated punjab until now we must remember despite all these issues of punjab towards the nation punjab has continued to deliver for the last seven decades it became the granary of the country the green revolution happened there And earlier it used to contribute 60% of the national uh, pool of grains, and now it still contributes about 30 to 40%, you know. Uh, This is Punjab's contribution to the nation. In spite of militancy, in spite of the devastation of Punjab's environment, land, water, everything, Punjab continues to deliver to India. But then Punjab asks, what is India giving us, you know? And there they have grudges about what they think they should have got and they have not got. So what happens is that every person has their own sense of truth, you know. And when somebody like me who goes with an empty vessel saying, okay, now put your truth into it, the vessel starts overflowing in a very contradictory way because here the state is saying something, people are saying something. Among people also, there are the, the Sikhs, Especially the radical Sikhs who have a Khalistan narrative. Then there are the left movements who are saying, no, 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 this whole thing is wrong. There has to be a different way of looking at it. And then there is the minority population of Punjab, the Hindu people. They have their own narrative also. And then there are the narratives of the women, then there are the narratives of the caste. So truth is also multi layered. And to cut through all that and to penetrate to what you think is important. It was an effort which has finally resulted in the book. But uh, I feel truth is very subjective as well, you know, it's not really. And that is why, I mean, I am a little amused when somebody uses the term nonfiction for my book, uh, because honestly, I feel there can be nothing called nonfiction in the world, because all representation is mediated through your mind. And there is a subjectivity to it, you know. If non-fiction means absolute objectivity, then I'm sorry, uh, I don't think there is anything called absolute objectivity.
0: Aman, I that's that's a completely you know fair point, and and I think uh, what you say and how you've articulated this right uh, is wonderful because irrespective of who's writing, right, uh, they they are bringing their Personal, I mean, the perspective and and their length lens to everything, of course. So, I think very very fair and and the next thing that I want to ask you, right, is is of course about the green revolution. You mentioned it fleetingly, and and we are talking about the greenery.
1: No, but let me can can I just add a rejoinder to everything I said? I I talked about these various categories of Punjab, Sikh and uh, left and uh, Hindu and gender and caste uh, the matter of satisfaction to me from this book is that all these different factions have accepted the book and punjab is also very divided internally because of recent history and all those things and uh, i find it very satisfying that at least as far as this book is concerned everybody says okay this was good work done you know this 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 does um, tell the world about us i think that that is something that i might have just earned by doing this work i
0: i think uh, and i say this as somebody right who's who read this who's reading this from an outsider perspective right like none of these stories are say my stories or one that i can resonate with as a lived experience directly or or via someone i know but i think it's just the fact, right? And and I was, uh, there's, for instance, an excerpt on the caravan and that's really how I discovered uh, the book and, and you uh, subsequently, Aman, where, you know, you say have that, there's that excerpt, right, where you talk about uh, traveling to the village of Jalur and, and there are these 500, 600 Dalit families in the community that don't own any land in the village, right? And there's a brutal assault against them. You, I mean, certain amount of sensitivity to be writing about, um, I mean, uh, the kind of political, social, there's so much friction. there is so much tension. Uh, there are so many perspectives. And of course, you've traveled and met people and spoken to them. Uh, but I, I am so glad to actually hear uh, when you say that, that, that everyone who you sought to represent in the book feels that they've been represented and and accepted, which I think is is a big compliment to you, really.
1: Thank you. Thank you. No, I brought it up because once when my second book was out in Jamia, a student asked me, are the people you write about, can they find themselves in your book? And that is a gap uh, that a writer has to address between reality and representation. Um, I said I would be damned if the people I write about can't find themselves in my book. Because, you know, often it happens that when writers, filmmakers, musicians, any artist, they go anywhere, they imbibe the experiences of that place. But when they represent it, then there is some break that happens in between. And uh, most often people don't feel themselves represented in, in works of art. Uh, the works of art then become a thing unto themselves. That's an argument. I mean, art for art's sake is an argument. But... I did not want to be a writer like that. I, I wanted to bring... See, my inspiration in that sense is is from a different source. My inspiration is from this Polish journalist called Ryszard Kapusinski, who was actually the only Polish journalist allowed to travel outside the Iron Wall in the communist era, you know, in between the 50s and the 90s. And he covered 27 revolutions in those many countries was already given the death sentence by four countries, You know, survived, uh, lived to tell his stories, and uh, was a big insight into what was going on in mostly African, Middle Eastern, and South American countries. And I have sought in my life to be able to do the kind of work he did. That is why often while doing this book also, it tired me, it broke me. Uh, I was disillusioned by what I carried in my head as the Sikh ethos not fulfilled on the ground. You know, there was many sadnesses. But I kept remembering Kapusinchki saying that when you actually go to get people's stories, you must realise that there are millions wanting to tell about themselves to the world. It's mm-hmm. just that nobody listens to them and nobody talks about them. And I thought I should do what he wanted us to do, you know. So that's the reason why it's it seems personal, it seems lived. Is because that kind of work has gone into it.
0: Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, uh, I mean, I have these sections marked out in the book and uh, you you say, right, that nations are imagined community, right? And there is no point living in a nation um in which, and, and this could be a country nation, a state nation, whatever, in which one does not feel that they belong or where they don't feel that their dignity or sense of justice or resources for a better life are not, right? Right
1: anyway we were at green revolution you wanted to ask
0: ji <laughs> no yeah. so and and the green revolution of course is something which uh, which is i i think in your book you say that you know it's, uh, punjab was the laboratory where social and economic experiments failed but they were still implemented across india and and green revolution is of course one of the pivotal economic experiments right um in, in this country and uh, and a lot of i think imagination of kate and farmer and sarsok kate and you know hand pumps and whatever especially in in uh, non-political media right in and entertainment media is born out of that imagination of a land overflowing with plenty right but then this there, but there's obviously a certain crisis that you've spoken about in the book, right? And you don't call it a crisis just of Punjab. But by virtue of the fact that it's a crisis of Punjab, it's a national agrarian crisis. That, you know, uh, that the Punjab, which reason, one of the reasons it's so relevant is because of the Green Revolution, right? But there is a lot of political aspects that uh, I don't really want to detail out too much Uh, because I want people to read the book and experience uh, some of these things for themselves. But what about the Green Revolution spurred the imagination for it to become one of the pivotal ways that we view Punjab today? Uh, Firstly, perhaps that's something and if you agree or disagree with that, of course, it's just my understanding of it. No, no,
1: it's it's absolutely right. And see, this is again how perceptions are formed, right? And let's start with the word Punjab itself. You know, I mean, I spell it with an A, you know, because that's how even Batuta used the, the word Punjab, five rivers, you know, uh, the words are Persian, actually. But is this Punjab that Punjab? Now we have two and a half rivers flowing through this Punjab. The other Punjab is in Pakistan, you know. So should we then carry out the name Punjab itself? You know, that's the question that I'm I'm problematizing here. Similarly, the green revolution that we see, and I argue quite uh, elaborately in the book, that the actual green revolution was when the British created the canal colonies, when Rawalpindi, Lyalpur. Faisalabad, these areas were set, Gumri; these were settled in what is now Pakistan, you know. That is when the empire, the British empire, chose this area overflowing with water to feed the entire empire, and especially the armies that they were deploying in Africa and Europe. Uh, it was also their way by building railroads, they managed to reach the bottom of the Russian Empire, because the threat at that time was Russia, the large, czarist Russia, you know. So they reached up to Afghanistan, which was all part of Punjab at that time. So parts of Afghanistan were part of Punjab. You know, so uh, with partition, the whole idea of Punjab has changed. And with what we call the Green Revolution in the 1960s, actually this was putting the same cultivation system onto steroids, through pesticides, insecticides, fertilizers, hybrid seeds, you know, the the area was pumped up to produce more and more. Punjab is 1.5% of nation's land. And yet, as I said earlier, it was producing 60% of the nation's food needs. Because in the 60s, our crisis was hunger. There was, of course, an attack by China, then by Pakistan. Uh, These were external enemies. But internally, we had memories of the great Bengal famine in which approximately 4.3 million people had died. And we didn't want to do that to India again after independence. And so the government chose Punjab to be the Green Revolution state. Yet, what happens later on is that once Punjab has started producing, Punjab is also encountering issues with how farming is being done. And there could be smaller issues like, you know, not very good tractor quality or not very good machinery coming in. So you need to protest against, you know, the tractor maker or, you know, the government that, okay, don't import such tractors. We're mostly importing from Russia at that time. Or there is a problem of, you know, electricity cuts are happening, why are we not getting enough electricity or why are we getting electricity at a higher rate? Why isn't our crop picked up at a better rate than it is being picked up? These were issues that had started boiling over in Punjab even in the 60s and 70s, especially in the 70s. But the nation, so busy building itself, forgot to look about on the issues of Punjab. 30 years later, the same very green revolution model continues in Punjab, but it has devastated it ecologically, environmentally, even economically and socially. Because caste, as we talked about, is perpetuated in the rest of the central India in a way in which it is not perpetuated in Punjab. You know, the lines are much harder in central India. In Punjab, it was not so as much as it was there. It, was, it existed, and that is sad about Punjab. But the Green Revolution, the money that the Juts got from it, and suddenly the the non-involvement of other castes in the farming work because of heavy machinery coming in, actually aggravated the caste lines in the villages. Now, this is a fallout of the Green Revolution in social terms. If you look at how much money you were deriving from wheat or paddy, paddy, for example, is not a crop of Punjab, yet it was growing it for the nation. But if you look at the graph of whether the price of paddy and wheat have grown as per, say, the jobs that you hold in, in government services, like a teacher or an official or whatever, not at all. The parity is massively skewed against the farmers. So these are the issues that keep building up. And yet you can't do anything because the country has chosen this to be the Green Revolution state. It is not putting enough industry here. It is not creating enough jobs here. So people are forced to continue doing farming, which is finally not profitable any longer. That is where farming is in Punjab right now. And the same model of Green Revolution, I remember a prime minister in his campaign speeches seven years back was saying, he said it at seven different states. He said, We will bring Green Revolution here. We will bring Green Revolution. The country doesn't need a Green Revolution. The country needs to learn what has happened in the Green Revolution state and not repeat it in other places. But sadly, our bureaucratic thinking, our policy making, and our different party, political party agendas are such that we do not reflect upon what has gone wrong. We continue perpetuating the same wrongs elsewhere. And now with the new farm bills. I mean, I don't know whether it how it is in Bombay, but in Bangalore, onion is at uh, 100 rupees a kilo. Yes. So and granaries of the country, the godowns of the country are overflowing with onions. So there is a market force or crony capitalists who are monopolizing the godowns and not releasing enough onions in the market. And this is going to get aggravated, this monopolistic activity with the new agrarian laws that have just come in. Punjab, Haryana, Western UP, some parts of Rajasthan are protesting against this. But we are not looking at them. As a country, we don't look at 50% of our nation, which is still tied to the agrarian economy. That does not mean only farming, but it means all allied trades with agriculture, even artisans, even um, laborers, farm laborers the the small-scale factories which are producing uh, machinery for agriculture. You know, the the whole ecosystem of India, uh, of agrarian India, is 50% of the nations. And we in the cities, we don't look at those issues because we think, oh, it is happening way back in the villages without realizing that most of us have just been one or two generations out of the villages. We who live in cities today. This is the uh, the dichotomy of discourse in the country today, and it is sad because we are not focusing on the real thing. You now, even during this whole coronavirus lockdown and our economy plunging twenty three point nine percent, the only sector that produced profit was agriculture, and yet we don't look at it. So, my book is—I mean, of course, it is about Punjab. It is about particular things in Punjab, but it is also largely about what is happening to the country. You know, and and we are going the wrong way. And a writer can only warn the society. We can't really pick up flags and <laughs> protest on the roads, you know. We can warn people of what, where we are heading, and we are not heading in good places. Similarly, the other laboratory in Punjab is the laboratory of Hindutva. You know, like Dhyanand Saraswati comes to Punjab and creates the Arya Samaj in the in the 19th century, you know. And then that is the Arya Samaj that later on breaks into various parts. One becomes a Hindu Sabha, one becomes RS, RSS, you know. Um, then the RSS, then there is a Jansan, which is created as a political party of the Arya Samajis. And then the Jansan morphs into BJP in the late 70s. So again, in terms of religious experiments, Punjab was the laboratory where the experiments were being conducted. Because... In that sense, Punjab is a very fascinating geography in my opinion. It is neither Western world nor Eastern world. It is somewhere in between the Orient and the Occident. This is the land of the Indus Valley civilization, in my understanding. And I think it needs to be characterized more. Sadly, current political divisions and geographical boundaries are such that We have about seven regions inside the Indus Valley civilization. I don't know when we will ever be able to make a comprehensive study of the Indus Valley civilization, which in itself is one of the oldest civilizations in the world.
0: Yes, and in the way I mean, Punjab is why what we know today as state Punjab
1: is not the full land of five rivers, right? It is one seventh of that. You know, it's a pathetic little patch. You know here. You know, it's like uh, your uh, Dadima's uh, quilt has torn, 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 and you get a patch of it, and from that patch, you try to imagine the whole quilt, you know? Like, how would that feel? That's how you feel walking through this Punjab today. That
0: is a wonderful analogy. Uh, I I was just wondering, you know, that the kind of... So, there is this... and, And this whole aspect of the agricultural issue the bill that we discussed as well as i mean even the legacy piece of say the Punjab agriculture indebtedness relief act etc which which is the debtors protection act all of that is detailed in your book Amal. but another way right uh, uh, there is this being astray on uh, from uh, the agrarian perspective another way that an right at the beginning i i said that we we will discuss uh the drug issue and the exodus but there are two other ways that uh the state right had to fight and, and continues to fight its demons one is of course in detailed in your chapter on the or medicine which is the whole drug addiction that's made all this news in the post-militancy years but it's not really considered so much of a blot right it's it's still something that flies under the radar right and you've sought to break into this maze of cultural practices um, and you know this whole alcohol and narcotic use and how the punishment model right here is self-defeating as well perhaps and and chapters I think the sixth and the seventh chapter which is between masculinity and medicine right and how say, there is the whole degradation of land and livestock and diet with pesticides and fertilizers that uh, affect the virility of the land as much as the people, and how you've touched upon the whole uh, scourge of drug addiction, was this aspect of unraveling the history or the the climate of the city to dig into, say, the political uh, or the legislative framework or economic issues right but there is of course a certain and i again i presume a certain pathos that comes with trying to reach out to say drug addicts or seeing people's personal lives right um being affected
1: yeah see will on a conversation like this we can't go into details of uh, everything in the drug sphere but there are two points i would like to emphasize one is, as an approach in the book, uh, it comes up very often how difficult was anything. You know, I chose not to do reportage the way it is now established in the world, mostly through the American School of Journalism, which to me is mostly a pornography of pain. You know, mm-hmm. that you you start your, your piece with, oh, there was a dark, dusty room, on the mustard wall was hung the picture of this man with a little dried garland around it. Five weeks back, this mine had gone to the tubal and hung himself or drank this pesticide and died. And now the widow and five children are all languishing. They don't have food for three days. That's the kind of talk that is done in most of these reportages. I didn't want to do any pornography of pain. I met hundreds of victims of farmer suicides I met uh, hundreds of victims of disappearances of young boys during the militancy period. I didn't want to talk about a single of them because I believe the audience is mature enough. I mean, if I'm saying that uh, I have met them and they are saying this, then you will take my word for it. Why do I have to paint these ghastly pictures to you? You know, like so. Uh, that is one aspect. So, difficulty is there in any. Well, trying to understand politics, trying to understand drugs, trying to understand agrarian crisis, all of them are difficult. But there are two things that we need to know here. One is that as far as drugs goes, the, the social psychology is such that if we could pump up our land with chemicals to make it produce much more than it usually did earlier. Uh, remember in the 70s, every year the production of Wheat and rice in, in Punjab was doubling, you know, like seventy one x amount, seventy two x by two amount, seventy four x by six amount. Like that's the kind of progression that happened, you know, in the production of grains from land because of fertilizers. People think of drugs as these kind of fertilizers for the body. Oh, if the land could benefit, the meal we'll also benefit. It is not wrong. Now that is where we need the correction. That was neither did the land benefit. Nor are you benefiting from it. And second aspect is much of this is also to be seen in terms of what are the laws we have that govern the consumption of drugs. And the NDPS Act of 1985 is a particularly draconian piece of law which must must be amended to decriminalize lower amounts of consumption of drugs. Because that's the we need to look at drugs not through the discipline and punish model which you just mentioned but through the humanitarian model of seeing an addict as an illness and the requirement for treatment and not punishment now and oh it's only through that that we can cure the drug uh, problem of not only punjab but even manipur even bangalore delhi bombay there are drugs everywhere you know uh, punjab was typically bloated up because of a wrong statement by a politician uh, which was irresponsible i criticized it in the book as well uh, but the issue and then you have to look at it in geopolitical terms that where is punjab located on the golden crescent you know which is punjab pakistan and iran you know and the production of drugs so 90% of production of drugs is in afghanistan and uh, because of the war- wars that have happened in iraq and afghanistan the roots of the drug supply to the world stopped massively through through the Balkans, through South Russia, and uh, they naturally came towards Karachi, towards Bombay, towards Delhi, and Punjab was on the way. So it also got taken in by that scourge of drugs, you know. And so it's a, it's a multi-headed demon that we are trying to deal with. That's, I think, important. The other thing to look at any issue that happens in Punjab is that mm, overall, I mean, for a reader uh, listening to the talk, you need to remember the term a double bind. You know, that there is an issue both between Punjab and the center and at the same time within Punjab itself. So, neither of these solutions, whether going how the center wants you to go, is the right way or fighting between yourselves and ending up with bruises all over is a solution. Punjab has to rise out of the double knot in which Punjab is tied up. And uh, that work, I hope, can happen only when people put their heads together and try to find comprehensive solutions to things.
0: Aman, I actually, you know, this is, and while you speak, right, I am just wondering to myself, and for people, uh, and I know I've said this that, and I'm going to say this again. It's a very important book, and people should read it and and share it with others. There is, and and I now um uh, do not envy your editor at all, uh, because they had to remove eighty thousand words out of the book because there is. I mean, even in such a short snippet of conversation, there is so much going on here. I think um, the last question perhaps that I would want, uh, you know, to ask you is is the issue of migration, right? Uh, Very fascinating because a lot of laborers migrate to Punjab as much as the whole NRI, uh, uh, you know, interface, if I may call it, that exists today, right, in the imagination of uh, punjabis in, in canada to nri weddings to you know aspirations uh, to migrate right and and of course how uh, that shapes uh, the state as well so perhaps i think to towards the end uh, now what do you what would you say for the exodus right is the exodus something that that becomes a reverse brain drain or is it I don't again want to go too much into the voices and of the individual so much, but but largely, largely, what is that shaped this yearning for migration uh, while the state in itself was prospering?
1: Yeah, so very good question. I'm very glad you we came back to the three kinds of exotuses from Punjab. You know, like uh, the one that you hit upon right in the beginning: you know, militancy, drugs, and migration. See, uh, migration pattern from Punjab is uh, also almost as old as it is in the rest of India. I mean, for example, Bhagalpur and Gujarat and Tamil Nadu, and they have been sending people abroad for a long time now. And similar in Punjab, soldiers went to Africa in the Boer War in the late 19th century. Then they went for the First World War uh, to Europe. Uh, Many of them... Uh, Second World War as well. Many of them chose to stay back in England and other African countries as well. But later on, uh, at least in this period, for the last three, four decades, there have been two primary causes of migration. One has been militancy itself. A lot of people, as I said, the faith between the nation and the citizen broke. A lot of people felt they should leave the country. They left uh, in the 80s, 90s as well. Uh, for the last two decades it is mostly economic pressure uh, the fact that there are no jobs here the fact that uh, land is getting divided between families so there isn't much to earn from land either uh, and there are no avenues that people see uh, from living here and uh, in comparison uh, the people who go abroad and send money back home they seem to be the heroes of punjab you know uh, more and more girls now who go abroad Uh, send money back home, take care of parents. There are entire villages which are lying empty, big houses built, nobody lives in them. But this migration of Punjab, as you very, very rightly said, is exactly the kind of migration that happens between UP Bihar and Punjab, which has actually, I mean, Punjab takes the credit for the Green Revolution, but the Green Revolution was executed on the back of this Bihari and UP Labour. You know, And that is something we need to start acknowledging. Till now, there is not a single good narrative about these, this migrant labor's lives or how they dealt with Punjab, what they did here. And you said brain drain, I would rather call it brawn drain because that is what is happening. Mostly Punjab is going abroad and actually doing the same kind of work in better conditions that the migrants from Bihar and UP come and do in Punjab. So, in that sense, it has come a full circle. Mostly in the U.S., they drive taxis and trucks. In uh, in Europe, they work as farm laborers. In, uh, in Australia and New Zealand, they go um, through um, student visas, but they try to become permanent there and work in the farms there. So, it is they're doing basically blue-collar jobs wherever they're do- going. That to me, should actually bring in a little bit of empathy in them towards the labor who has been coming here for decades and working on our farms. And the irony is that that doesn't seem to happen. Because the junk who employs this labor but sends his own son to go the same work in Europe has to come down from his high horse and say that, okay, there is a parity in terms of work that these laborers are doing here and my son is going and doing there. And whatever my son fights for in those countries as rights, as minimum hour, wages, as privileges, uh, housing, water, whatever. And we need to give that to these migrants who come to Punjab as well. But that doesn't seem to happen. And that is my pain with Punjab. Because, you know, all said and done, I am a bhaiya for Punjab because I come from Odisha, you know, so so I understand their plight and I see that uh, Punjab does not extend to them the kind of hospitality it expects its sons and daughters to get anywhere else in the world. That is again something that Punjab needs to look very seriously at.
0: That's uh, such an interesting perspective, Aman. You know, uh, I think what you've done, right, with this book is you've linked historical narratives of course in your personal uh voice right with all with all of these contemporary issues and and for anyone who reads this book uh it it will really help them not just understand but also re-examine the fault lines of what uh they know about Punjab so thank you so much for writing the book I had a great time reading it uh, for everyone who's listening to this podcast book is available at independent bookstores and Amazon and a Flipkart. Uh, do uh, please check it out. You can also read a couple of excerpts that are available over the internet. Uh, see if are any specific chapters uh, that interest you. I personally feel that there is something for everyone, uh, whether your interest is to learn about the demarcations around egalitarianism and caste or um, the people, agrarian mishaps, the political and militancy issues, uh, important figures uh, in, in Punjab. And and there is something for everyone. It's a very important book. Uh, and I think that's the fourth time I've used that adjective. So thank you, Aman, uh, for taking our time and talking to us in such detail uh, about uh, this rigorous and, and fascinating book that you've
1: written. Thank you so much, Arushi. I- really love speaking to you. I don't know where the time went and uh, I really hope that readers uh, can get to the book and read it. I'm very satisfied that it is now in your hands. Thank you.
0: Do not forget to tune in to us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Ghana, and HT Smartcasts.